It's December 19th, and this is the last episode of the 2016 season for the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast. If you're a teacher, you might notice more kids in your classroom with autism, attention disorders, learning disabilities, or other diagnoses that mark a neurologically diverse group of kids. This episode focuses on one kind of neurodiversity, autism spectrum disorders. Is it really true that autistic kids gravitate more to science, technology, engineering, and math? How do you integrate students on the autism spectrum with neurotypical students or students without these diagnoses? What practical tips are there for letting these kids succeed in engineering? We talk to a researcher, a school occupational therapist, and a teacher to find out. Dr. Jennifer Yu studies education and students with disabilities at the nonprofit research institute SRI International in California. Jennifer also used to be a high school science teacher. Recently, I called her up over Skype to talk about her work. The work that I do and the research interests that I have are specifically around kids with disabilities. And so I look at things like, you know, what are some of the factors that can really improve the educational outcomes and basically, you know, the lives of these students with disabilities. Um, More recently, I've had a a real specific interest in autism, and we recently had received a grant from the National Science Foundation to look at autism and STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, um, to see kind of what the convergence is there. You know, what is, is there really some truth to all this, you know, anecdotal evidence that we have that people with autism and people on the spectrum, you know, must be like really like geeky and really like, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) gravitating. toward a kind of engineering type fields. Can I ask you uh, if you had any, say, personal interest in that or was you kind of got sucked into the project because of the NSF grant? Well, you know, um, the NSF grant actually came about because I'm I'm based in Silicon Valley and so mm-hmm. and I'm married to an engineer and so I'm kind of immersed in this tech world around me and so you hear a lot of people just kind of throwing around the term like autism and being on the spectrum and just sort of equating that naturally to people who are programmers or engineers like oh yeah that you know person is an amazing coder you know he must be on the spectrum or something like that everyone just seems to just naturally think this must be the case but when I would actually look in to see, you know, what does the evidence show us, I realized there wasn't really that much empirical evidence. So there weren't real data to support this, just a lot of anecdotes. And there are some studies that have been done, um, mainly by Simon Baron Cohen and his group in the UK, but not really much work that's been done on a large scale in the US. And so because I am a disabilities researcher, and I've had the opportunity to work with some really large data sets that look at kids with disabilities, I thought, hey, here's a great opportunity for me to really decide and find out if, in fact, there is some truth to um, this kind of stereotype that we have. And so when we kind of delved into it, my, you know, my collaborator, Xing Wei, and I, uh, we realized that, yeah, there actually is some truth to this. So um, looking, you know, at some data that looks specifically at college-age students with disabilities we found that those who have autism seem to be significantly more likely to pursue STEM fields. 
STEM majors than the general population of kids. We found 34% were majoring in STEM, um, whereas only about 22% or 20%, I believe, major in STEM from kind of the general population. Um, so mm-hmm. that was so that kind of put us on that path to thinking about like, hey, this is there's something here, and um, and really trying to delve deeper into that. Yeah, so that's really great. And I saw a little bit of that study. I I read your writings on that. Did you look into any of the possible reasons why, like why they go into STEM more? Yeah, so the data that we used, um, so I should point out the data set was based on this um, large existing data set called the National Longitudinal Transition Study 2 or NLTS2. Um, so what we did is what we call like secondary analysis. So we analyze, you know, data that's already out there. Um, and so one of the limitations of that is that we can't really ask any follow-up questions, right, because all mm-hmm. the data is already there. But we did really start delving into that, looking more at the literature, looking at what other studies have shown. And, you know, there there is some evidence to show that there might be, you know, some genetic influence. There was a study that was done that showed that kids who came from parents uh, who are engineers, there seemed to be like a higher incidence of autism among those kids. So, you know, why is that the case? No one really knows yet. But also, you know, similarly, we find that pockets uh, of um, where there's like big tech hubs, so definitely Silicon Valley, but really like across the country and even around the world, um, we find that there seems to be a larger prevalence of kids with autism in these tech hubs. So, yeah, there's that kind of evidence to support this. But beyond that, all we have really to go on are some theories that Mm. have said, well, you know, it could be that kids with autism uh, are, you know, what we call sort of systemizers, right? So some of the characteristics of autism is that they um, tend to really perseverate on things. If If there's something that really interests them, they're really going to focus in on it and they're just going to keep at it. Um, and problem solve. And they also have kind of a very structured, linear sort of way of thinking. And all of that actually um, plays really well into a lot of these STEM fields, that those are the same characteristics that would make you a great engineer, would make you a great, um, you know, computer science programmer. So those are some of the reasons that we think that we may see this kind of relationship between STEM and autism. Okay. Yeah, I've heard that. I've uh, met quite a few engineering teachers, high school engineering teachers who've, like you said, thrown around that stereotype of like, oh, uh, certain kids who might be on the spectrum, as they say, they are really into engineering or STEM. And and so that's interesting that you have some research to back that up. Is there more research being done to try and answer these questions? I think there's definitely a growing interest, um, mainly because, you know, we can't ignore the fact that, um, you know, for whatever reason, there does seem to be this, you know, increasing prevalence of autism within our society. So I think now the statistic is one in 68 kids um, with autism are out there um, in the U.S. And so as we see this larger number of kids, we think, okay, you know, what are the things that we can do to support them and to help them? But then also, let's think about the flip side, like what is it about these 
these characteristics of these individuals that could also actually be sort of beneficial to society. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, definitely, you know, in in a world where um, STEM oftentimes kind of dominates, and we really need to have um, people, especially in the U.S., who do have more of this kind of STEM focus. Like, if this is a group that may naturally have this interest and to gravitate towards STEM, like let's let's find out more and let's see if there are ways that we can really kind of help propel them in that direction. Um, so yeah, I would say that there is an increasing interest in um, doing that kind of research and providing those kinds of supports and services. You mentioned also that uh, there's definitely a lot of strengths, it seems, uh, when it comes to kids with autism or autism spectrum disorders and their skills or interest in going into STEM and engineering. There might also be some disadvantages. Is there research that you know of saying that kids with autism spectrum disorder may face any extra challenges when uh, getting higher education or going into STEM? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, even in our research, when we found these really positive outcomes um, in terms of, you know, these kids with autism really seem to gravitate towards STEM and go on to major in STEM in college, that's great news. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is the fact that there aren't that many kids um, with autism who are going on to college. And now, you know, I should say that we're talking about autism, and I say that um, really speaking about the whole spectrum of disorders and so, you know, there's obviously those who, um, you know, fall on the spectrum that's maybe the more classic definition of autism, which are, you know, the nonverbal kids or those who may also have um, some kind of intellectual disability. But then even among those who academically may be doing extremely well, they're struggling. And I think a lot of that really speaks to kind of the social and the communication problems um, and challenges that they may face. When we think about the kinds of supports we can provide to them, a lot of that really is based on what we call these soft skills, right? Mm. So this ability to communicate effectively, to collaborate, to, you know, try and empathize, you know, put yourself in the other person's shoes. And, and, um, and, and I think those are the kinds of things that we really do need to work on to support uh, these individuals so that they can go on to college or they can go on to careers and are able to live independently, um, whether or not they are, um, you know, very, you know, they have great IQs or not. Like if you don't have all those skills in place, you really are going to be challenged in our society. Mm. Would you say that there's still research that's ongoing for how to best teach these kids then? I think so, yeah. I mean, you know, when we try to think about things like the best practices for supporting, uh, you know, kids with autism, there are certain things, um, certain tools that we can use. So, you know, we can provide them with a much more um, kind of scheduled um uh, like a, a schedule of, you know, the day-to-day, provide them with more visual supports. So those are little things that we can do. But really, in order to best support a person with autism, I think it's first important to recognize, um, and this is a term you're, you're going to hear often from people who are in the kind of autism community, you know, when you meet one person with autism, you have met just one person with autism, mm-hmm. meaning mm-hmm. that there is just so much diversity in terms of their, you know, specific personalities and their characteristics. And so really, the best thing you can do is kind of observe them and, and try to find out, you know, what are the things that um, are appealing to them? What are the 
triggers that may kind of set them off. So these are some, some of the things that I think, you know, teachers or educators, people who are trying to support people with autism um, can, can do in order to um, provide the best kind of environment for learning. So given the caveat that we know that it's really hard to make that one-size-fits-all solution, what strategies do you know of that some teachers specifically use to help some of these uh, kids with autism? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, like I said earlier, things like providing kind of visual cues are obviously going to be very beneficial, I think, really to all kids, I mean, to all people. So, so honestly, I think a lot of the things that may benefit those with autism are really meant to benefit, like, everyone. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, so, like, the visualization, being able to give kids a schedule um, to say, okay, first we're going to do this, and then we're going to move on to this because, honestly, the transitions are, are some of the hardest things because that's when things are in flux and there's chaos. And, and for someone who, who is kind of ritualistic in their thinking or, you know, needs to know what's happening next, I mean, that's a time when they're just going to sort of kind of freeze up, right? It's going to be sort of a tense time for them. So anything we can do to alleviate that. I think would be extremely helpful. Um, and also, you know, when you think about the environment, a lot of teachers like to have like really colorful posters and a lot of artwork or things to help kind of stimulate students. Um, and so they may have lots of vibrant colors or things like that in their classroom. And they, that may actually have the opposite effect mm. for um, someone on the spectrum because they can so easily be distracted and, um, you know, may just may become sensory overload for them. Another thing you said struck me because it sounded so similar to what a professor at the University of Florida was telling me. She she specifically focuses on helping kids in the STEM uh, programs at that university who happen to have learning disabilities. And she was basically wondering the same thing, that uh, to teach kids with autism the best or, or a lot of learning disabilities the best it often just sounds like regular good old pedagogy, like good pedagogy skills that would apply to every student. Yeah, there is, um, you know, this area of research um, and design in um, kind of the disabilities world that we call universal design for learning. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really this idea of, you know, kind of taking these sort of ideas that are on the periphery and sort of coming, you know, bringing it to the middle. And we can we can think about this, for instance, um, in terms of things like, you know, when we provide wheelchair ramps, right, um, that's really meant to help, I guess, people who are in wheelchairs. But I have kids, and I remember <laughs> when I had little kids and I had my stroller, like, and I'm struggling to get them around, like, all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, these ramps are a godsend. And then, you know, going through a door, gosh, make sure the door is wide enough, not only for a wheelchair, but it's also going to help me in my stroller. So a lot of these things that we think um, should benefit kids with autism, if you think about it, actually would really be beneficial to everyone. That's a good thing for the engineers listening to hear, because that's (laughs) definitely a principle that I, I do hear a lot. A lot of these supposed innovations that might be for, you think, a targeted customer group are actually for everyone. So that's really neat to hear. 
Yeah, and in education, I think this is where technology gets really exciting for us because a lot of these kind of universal design concepts can really be applied in technology. So basic things are like, you know, text-to-speech has been helpful, increasing font size, like all of these things aren't that difficult to apply and really can help a lot of different kids because there are a lot of different types of learners, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And definitely could help those with autism as well. Jennifer, you wrote a, and I think a blog post, I keep referring to that, but you talked about some research that you had done about students with autism spectrum disorders entering college, and you compared two-year versus four-year colleges. Can you tell me a little bit about that research and what you found? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think that uh, some of the key takeaways from that study that we did was, um, first off, that two-year colleges are actually really beneficial for um, kids with autism. I think part of that is because community colleges are just such a nice transition for these students who, um, you know, now have to move on to kind of an independent, you know, living situation, an independent environment if they were just to go to, go straight to a four-year college. Having that sort of um, kind of cushion for Mm -hmm. them both in terms of, you know, being able to familiarize themselves um, with kind of, you know, the the college mentality and the way that, you know, classes are run, while still sort of having that safety net of, you know, the family nearby to support them. I think those are the kinds of things that make com- community colleges especially appealing. Um, and one of the things that we saw that was really interesting is that specifically for STEM fields, we found that those who were in two-year community colleges were were um, much more likely to then kind of persist on. And I think persistence is an important thing because, you know, it's one thing to be able to get into college and then to, you know, enroll in college, but then it's quite another thing to actually, like, follow through, right, Mm -hmm. Um, to be able to actually graduate with that degree. You know, this is something that's difficult for, for all students. Um, I think that we find, you know, there's a lot of dropout that occurs for college kids. Um, And definitely this is the case for autism as well. And so to see that two-year colleges seem to help with that sort of persistence um, and moving forward, I mean, that that's huge. Um, and that really speaks to um, having community colleges play a really key role in um, really furthering the education uh, for these students with autism. Yeah. Did you see that article recently? Um, there's a couple articles about how Microsoft has a special hiring program for candidates with autism. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so SAP was... Um, was one company that really um, took this on. They called mm-hmm. it their Autism to Work initiative. Um, and they, like, have a goal of, you know, by 2020, they want to have, like, a fairly significant portion of their employee pool be people with autism. Um, and so, so yeah, and I think other tech companies are kind of jumping on board, Microsoft being one of them. Yeah, that's really interesting. Is there any planned research about that? Or what do you think about that? I think that it's, it's a great idea. I think it kind of is based on a lot of, you know, the research that we have done, the research that was done, like I mentioned in the UK. So recognizing that there is this evidence now to support this idea Mm -hmm. um, that autism and STEM do, you know, kind of merge nicely together. I don't know if there has been that much evaluation that's been done of these specific programs. And, you know, I would love to to see that myself if there has been. Um, It definitely makes sense, though. And, And I think one thing that's interesting is that at least for 
um, you know, one of those companies, I know that they've worked very closely with, you know, advocacy groups and other organizations that can provide them with um, some better understanding of how to um, work with people with autism. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, you know, their interview process is not your typical interview process where, you know, it would be me talking with you in the pure social environment, which is like, you know, the most nightmarish thing you can imagine <laughs> for yeah. know, someone who doesn't want to be social, right? <laughs> um, so instead, they do things like um, they'll they'll give them problems problems to solve. They they may have them like tinker with Legos and have them build things and use that as the gateway to identify um, people who they think may be promising candidates. And from that, they would then um, provide them with kind of a social skills support group and um, training before they uh, and give them kind of an internship that involves this sort of, sort of social skills component to it before they then actually really emerge, uh, immerse themselves into, um, you know, working for various groups within Microsoft or, you know, SAP or these other companies. So it's, it's a really cool model. It's really interesting. And I would love to see how that works. And hopefully we will have some research in the coming years to, yeah. to find out. Yeah, me too. I'm interested in that. I'm just waiting for the day when that research bleeds over into the general population and then we revamp how we interview for all companies and, and all positions. Yeah, exactly, right? The current interview process, I don't know. I mean, is it really – I guess if you're – you know, um, trying to find a job where it is really about like talking with people and really communicating one-on-one um, -on -one in that sort of, you know, environment, yeah. maybe that's beneficial, but there's a lot of other skills you're not going to be able to right. capture and understand from that, you know, traditional um, interview process. So yeah, so again, like a lot of the things that, you know, are benefiting people with autism, people with disabilities really can apply to the whole population. Okay, well, closing thoughts before I, I let you go? Uh, no, no. I okay. mean, this was, this was fun. I, thanks for the opportunity to, to talk, and hopefully um, we will continue to be doing more research and we'll have more conversations further down the road. That was Dr. Jennifer Yu of SRI International. You can find links to the research articles mentioned in our conversation in the show notes. We now leave the research world to hear the perspective of someone directly in the field. My name is Marcy Schneider, and I'm an occupational therapist. Besides being an occupational therapist, or OT, Marcy is a doctoral candidate in rehabilitation science at the University of Florida. She's been practicing as an OT for the past 18 years, focusing on students with special needs in the K-12 school system. Like many OTs across American school districts, she says she's seen a significant amount of autism spectrum disorder in this time. Marcy spoke to me over the phone, and I asked her, first, what characteristics would distinguish an autistic student in the classroom? Well, I think that is a very challenging statement because the spectrum is so broad, but I think that some of the characteristics that do stand out are there's a lot of sensory needs. They have a hard time with noise. Um, they have a hard time with being in places that are very loud. Um, they have a hard time being in closed spaces. They may see that the children gravitate towards the edge of the class instead of being in the middle of the class. 
Um, they may see that the children tend to get up and want to walk around a lot, or they may want to stand to work. A lot of engineering classes at this level, they're very project-based um, and hands-on, and oftentimes they have to work in groups with other kids. Yes. What struggles would kids on the autism spectrum, what struggles would they face in these types of classes? Well, I think the hands-on pulls in the strengths of the students because written work is usually an area that is much more challenging and hands-on is an area of strength. However, working collaboratively is an area that's much more difficult. So I think when the teachers can be aware of helping the students maybe ahead of time, knowing how to navigate and maybe knowing what their designated role is, it may be very helpful in helping them organize. Organizational skills are also very challenging. Hmm. In your work as an OT, did you help teachers develop those skills to to work with uh, these children? Yes, and that's something that I've been very involved in, is helping teachers with developing and implementing accommodations into the classroom to help the students. And this is something that we've been very active in, is looking at you know what kind of expectations we're going to be made of the student in the classroom and looking at group projects and academic expectations and then looking at, you know, how can we help the student be successful? And that's one thing at looking at, okay, can we tell them ahead of time what they're going to need to be able to do? And then looking at, okay, what's our expectation? Is it we want them to be socially successful, is that going to be the goal, then maybe the academic expectation could be secondary. A lot of times giving them the steps ahead of time, knowing that a lot of times the students will shut down before they even start because the whole task will be very overwhelming. Mm. So it's very helpful to break it down into steps and having a visual guideline. Like pictures of, of what they're going to be doing in the day or... Yes, yes, a picture or, you know, depending on, you know, where their skill level may be, it could be written instructions. It helps the teacher to maybe have an extra set of hands come in and just be able to brainstorm and say, you know, what does this child need that may be above and beyond what the curriculum is set up for. And, you know, we have to take a look around the classroom and say, okay, well, let's look at this environment. You know, it may be that this, the classroom is overwhelming just in the way it's set up. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what, what really is not, you know, working and how can we make this child fit in and be successful? So it helps the teacher because they have all the students to think about every class all day long and then they have an extra person to come in and just look at this one student and how they can make them fit into the curriculum so and it is good teaching strategies but it's just coming at it from a different angle Mm -hmm. it's clear that an occupational therapist and other helpers would be great for helping the teachers accommodate these students how should a teacher address the other students in the classroom, does the teacher have to help the other kids work with the student with autism? That has always been our approach, which has been 
you know, inclusion because we want the child to be successful in life. Mm-hmm. And what we have done is just educate everyone. And, and sometimes it's a sensitivity training to just teach everyone that, you know, everyone has, everyone may be a little bit different and that we learn. And, and I think sometimes the children have grown up with their peers, so they know that, you know, they have learned from the time they were, you know, younger and they've come up together. So they start learning at a very young age that, you know, their their friends are maybe just a little bit different and have different challenges. So the, the teachers help with that. Mm-hmm. And we've had instances where the school counselor will come in and and help with that and do some sessions with the children, you know, and, and this happens more at the elementary age, and maybe do a story with the children and teach them about how people are different. And so we've had to do that some with the children when we, and especially with a child um, with autism spectrum disorder. And I think that's been very successful, but the goal is always that everyone is learning that this is how, this is what's appropriate and this is what we do. We work together. I know that uh, you've had a lot of successes, but if someone is facing resistance in their classroom to having um, a child with autism spectrum disorder. Yes. What do you say to, what do you say to that student or to that teacher? What, like if someone doesn't think that student can be in an engineering or a STEM classroom, what would you say to the, what would you say to those people? Oh, yes, yes. I, I have had challenges for, um, absolutely. And um, we've had challenges where we've tried accommodations and, I've I've tried to implement an accommodation and I've shown back up the next week and the teacher said, this didn't work. And we Mm -hmm. tried to explain to them that you, you cannot try an accommodation once that doesn't work. Some things are going to work one day and not the next. You have to realize that you have to have your bag of tricks, especially for the children that have more intense needs. Some days something's going to work, and some days something else is going to work. And, you know, you have to just advocate for the children. And that's the um, approach that we take. We're just here to advocate for the child, and they deserve a chance. And sometimes... um, Sometimes we win them over and sometimes we don't. <laughs> so so we, we keep trying. And, um, and I think that every child needs someone at the ground level at the school. And the parents really appreciate that. So, And I think the other important thing is that we listen to the child. A lot of times the adults get rolling and they forget that the child can give their own input. And mm-hmm. we remember to get the child's input and um, make sure that we're listening to the child. Do you ever run into the challenge of kids in K-12 thinking that they can't do engineering or STEM um, if they have some kind of disability or autism spectrum disorder? Well, I think what's funny is that all of the children I think that I have worked with, that is their primary area of interest. They love STEM. They love STEM. That's what they want to do. Oh. They all love, they all want to make movies. 
they all want to make video games. That's that's what they want to do. That's STEM. They've all been super creative and everything. That's yes. That's their area wow. of interest. They all have STEM is their area of interest. Is there anything you think teachers in elementary, middle school, high school should know that maybe we didn't talk about yet, especially if they're teaching these engineering skills? I know one thing. Um, the teachers that I've worked with, you know, we have um, found that communicating with the parents over the organizational organizational skills are a real issue. And um, Google Classroom has been very successful. Hmm. What do you mean? There's using Google Classroom so that the the teachers can make sure all the assignments and what the students are expected to do is on Google Classroom because the students um, have such a hard time keeping up with their work. Mm-hmm. And then that way the parents can log on to Google Classroom and then help them keep track oh, of their okay. assignments. Okay. So, because they have such a hard time with their organizational skills and they get caught up in their area of interest that keeping up with their classwork has been such an area of stress. I see, because they're focusing so, so much on the thing that they like. That they like, yes. Uh, that they get okay. behind on all their assignments or they just, they'll write the, you know, they'll get them in class, but they'll forget to bring them home. And so... Organization is a real issue. I know that you mentioned earlier that technology really helps. Yes. What other technology have you used that might help for STEM classrooms? So the other thing, um, as far as technology, there's a lot of like free apps and extensions that you can access through like Google Apps. You can use Things like um, like read and write or readability, but there's these are apps and extensions that allow you to like it. They'll like read the text out loud, or it can okay. highlight okay. the text. So things where maybe if the students are not strong readers. Or so if there's instructions for the projects or, you know, things where they're using the computer to build or because some of these, you know, they may be very savvy about not navigating around the computer. But if it's something with extensive reading, it may be more challenging. Um, And the other thing we did with one of our students, he did not tolerate the transition between class periods because it was so crowded in the hallways. Mm-hmm. And he was going into every classroom stressed out and upset. So we let him transition between classes five minutes early. So he went to the next class all by himself in the hallway. Mm. And he was like a different child, just like that. And then all of a sudden he could function um, you know, one child wears earplugs in every class because it's too loud. You know, so things like that where the OT can just, you know, kind of pick up on those little subtle things that the teachers may not really know, but it seems like common mm-hmm. sense, but it's not common sense. And sure. 
you're like, you know, why is this kid so stressed out in my class? I can't figure it out. And it's like, well, he's sitting in the middle. I think he needs to sit in the back. You know, like, well, this one kid uses a rocking chair, you know, instead of the kid teacher yelling at him to put the chair down instead of until he tips it over, you know, like mm. things like that. Yeah, it sounds very customized for every child, of course. What would you say to the other kids in the classroom about the benefits of having uh, another kid in the class with autism? I would say that this is one of your friends, and we we got we need your help. This is what we do. I think I would talk to them about compassion, and I would talk to them about understanding. And I think I think they need to be educated on what autism is. Because I think that at that age, they're old enough to understand. That was Marcy Schneider, school occupational therapist in Florida. Links to the teacher resources that Marcy mentioned are in the show notes. Finally, here's a part of a conversation with Melanie Kong, a past guest and a high school engineering teacher in the Seattle area who's teaching in a new school this year. She's had autistic students, and I asked her if she has had to teach them differently. I don't feel like I need to teach those kids in a different way. I think what changes is the way I'm facilitating the group work. And what I've noticed so far teaching at this new school, I've, I've seen such an outstanding job with the kids at trying to make sure everyone is included. And I think that's been really wonderful so far as, as team members asking each other, like, hey, what can I do to help? Or when a student with autism is, is trying to, like, hey, what can I do? Or I don't understand this and I help, you know, I, I don't know what you're saying. They've been really patient in trying to be clear and trying to make sure that every student is heard. So I think that for me, I'm not changing my instruction very much. What I am changing is just making sure that I'm more aware of these students. I'm being more aware that they have a different way of thinking and that they might be able to bring a different perspective and making sure that their team members respect and acknowledge that. Okay, so the, your engineering class is very team-based, and so I could see how facilitating the social interactions would be really important. Are there any tips, anything you could give as advice to someone else, a first-year teacher who's experiencing this? I've been doing a very intentional job towards the beginning of the school year to set up these expectations of teamwork, and I've been doing that by by having structured lessons that really show, hey, we all have different ways of thinking. And it's important to respect that. And I think one great lesson that I did, and this came from Ellen Brown, who's been on this podcast before, but she does a very simple activity. She just calls it the birds activity. But kids get as much time as they need, two to five minutes, to list as many names of birds that they can. And mm-hmm. they come up with this list. And then afterwards, they compare at their team. And they don't only they don't only compare what are the names on my list, but they compare what are the ways that you thought about this. And different kids will have different strategies. Some kids were like, hey, I just thought about all the sports teams that are out there. And, and mm-hmm. other kids are like, I went through little mind, we, we, I went on a mind travel around the Woodland Park Zoo and I visited downtown Seattle and I imagined the seagulls there. So these kids all have different ways of thinking about the problem. But then you also have some kids who are like, oh, Pidgey's a bird and so is Woodpecker <laughs> and you know, Roadrunner and um, t- you know, Donald Duck, right? So you'll get all different kinds of names and then they really realize it's a really low entry activity, but they really realize that we all have different ways of thinking about this problem. It's sometimes the people who have don't have experience in this who can be the most creative with it. And it was some of my autistic kids who happened to be really 
like happen to know a lot about birds and they brought so much knowledge and their bird expertise to the table. And I, I think it just really showed because after they finished the, the team debrief, they individually, again, brainstormed as many names of birds as they could. And of course, every kid's list goes up and they talk about like, it's because I followed the strategy this other team member gave to me. Mm. So a very simple activity like that really just show the kids that, yeah, it doesn't matter where we're coming from. We all have different ways of thinking about this. And there's something valuable about me trying to think in the way that you're thinking. Thank you to my guests in today's episode, Melanie Kong, Marcy Schneider, and Dr. Jennifer Yu. I'd appreciate it if you'd share your own thinking with me about the show so far. Please subscribe to the show and leave reviews and comments on iTunes, SoundCloud, Twitter, and all that same stuff. Get the details at the website k12engineering.net. This is the last episode for 2016, and it'll be a little while before we start up again, but I am excited to get to season two in the next couple months. Thank you for the support, and here's to engineering education in 2017. Our opening music comes from School Zone, the radio edit by the Honorable Sleaze. Our closing music is from Late for School by Bleep Tour. Both are used under Creative Commons attribution licenses. The K-12 Engineering Education Podcast is a production of Pios Labs. Hey, one last reminder in 2016, if you can come to the South by Southwest Festival in March 2017 in Austin, Texas, come say hi to Rachel and me. We'll be there at the South by Southwest EDU playground to introduce a STEAM curriculum on electronic quilts. And we'll also be at the South by Southwest Interactive Festival to train all you business types in how improv games can help you be a better designer. We hope you can join us. (laughs) 